the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. It's Monday, the beginning of a brand new week here in November. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, anything that's on your heart, I'll do my best. All you have to do is call us, 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630 You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com where you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And remember, as always, if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, I hope you had a great day in church yesterday. It was Communion Sunday for us here at Calvary Chapel. Um, Lots of people were at church, and we started the Book of Acts. I'm really expecting the Lord to do some really neat work. Um, I, I told the church yesterday, I think it's about a year or so to get through the Book of Acts. And I just have this sense of anticipation that God is really going to do something, so you can be praying for us. Tonight here at, at the church, we've got our men's, women's, and youth Bible studies starting at 7 o'clock. Ladies, you can watch... Uh, live stream at calvarysa.com if you can't make it here, but that starts at 7 o'clock. And um, we'll get going. Let's see what we've got here. This is a strange question. It's anonymous. Um, It says, are there any disadvantages to church hopping? Um, the, the, The way you put the question surprised me a little bit because I would have thought maybe uh, you would have said, are there any any advantages to church hopping because I think the disadvantages are obvious. You never get connected with the body of believers. You never really get to serve in a ministry You um, from one church to another. I've always wondered why people did that. And, and I've come to the conclusion after all these years that most church hoppers are just people that really don't want to invest in the, in the fellowship that um, God may be leading them to don't want to give. They don't want to surrender to anybody's authority. They, they want the benefits of church without any of the responsibilities. And Anonymous, that is really um, the worst condition we could possibly be in. As I mentioned a minute ago, we started in the book of Acts yesterday here at Calvary Chapel San Antonio. And we're going to go all the way through it, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. If you were shopping around, or, or I'm sorry, hopping churches, uh, you'd never get through the book. Uh, one of the advantages, one of the big advantages of coming to a church like ours is that if you are here every Sunday, uh, you're going to hear every single word read and or explained in the book of Acts. And you're going to be able to let the Spirit sort of give you some direction based on what's going on in the Word of God. 
and why people want to change churches uh, beyond just trying to escape any responsibility to give or to serve or to be under somebody else's authority. I, I don't think there are any advantages at all to it, and I think there are many, many disadvantages. You know, one of the problems, I think, uh, in in my study in Acts, um, you know, the power, the supernatural power that the first century church saw on a pretty regular basis is missing in our church culture. We have a form of godliness. We've got the big buildings. We've got the, the, the great performances, the musical uh, performances. Um, but but well, we have the appearance of power or the appearance of, of, of doing the right thing. We don't have any power. And a lot of it is because it's kind of an attitude. You know, God wants us to invest in and be invested in uh, our local church. That's the way God works. It's the way he's always going to work. And the people that really don't plug into a church, they're the ones that are missing out. Now, let me take this opportunity for everybody else, not directly to the person asking the question, but just to everybody else in the audience. Why is it that we would want church without the responsibility of of belonging to that church. Now, I'm not talking about an official membership. We don't have that at Calvary Chapel. We tell people that if you've been here more than twice, you're a member. But but you see, that's the way the Lord is going to work in, in this last two and a half years, especially during the quarantine. Um, people got used to watching online, and some of them just, well, you know, I don't need to go back. What happens in a church is wonderful. What happens when you're connected to a body of believers, when, when these are people that you recognize your responsibilities to serve, um, what happens to you in that situation uh, is, is supernatural, and you're missing out on it if you are church hopping. So, yeah, there's a lot of disadvantages to church hopping. Um, I hope that answers your question. Here is a question from Stuart. Um, he wants to know, will I comment on pastors using curse words from the pulpit? Stuart, you know what? It's a shame that I have to comment on this or that you even have to ask the question. Uh, I can't imagine, I cannot imagine a pastor using cuss words from the pulpit. And yet I'm not naive. I know that it happens. You know, the pulpit is a holy place. I've always had the the idea that when I'm walking to the pulpit, it's almost like I can hear the voice of God, like Moses heard it from the burning bush. Uh, Take off thy sandals, for the ground you're standing on is holy. In the pulpit, I'm representing Jesus. In the pulpit, um, my job is to instruct, to teach. My job is to encourage, to edify, to exhort, um, and to explain and, and you know, what we're doing when we use profanity, um, I, I just can't imagine. It. I, you know, it's, it's so foreign to me. Paul and I will sometimes will listen to other pastors. And uh, I, I appreciate pastors with style because I don't really have any style. But I appreciate pastors with style. And they'll say something and it's funny or they'll have a voice or a voice inflection that... A voice inflection that's that's um, um, interesting, or they'll they'll have these phrases they say, and I'll look at Paul and say, "Can you imagine me ever saying that?" I heard some th- this weekend. I said, "Paul, I am going to fear way to work that into my message tomorrow," and of course I didn't because I can't. But um, I like that. I like style. I like, the, but cussing from the pulpit is just wickedness. It's just wickedness. How in the world? Would you ever explain that to Jesus? One of the things, one of the stories in our gospel accounts is Jesus toward the end of his ministry. Some Greeks came to Jesus and they came to his disciples. They wanted to see Jesus. They came to his disciples and they said, and I like the King James, sir, sirs, we would see Jesus. And they were asking if they could see Jesus. And of course, he didn't have time for him at that moment. But that's what people need to see and hear when they come to church. They need to see and hear Jesus. And if I'm drawing attention to myself using foul language, oh my gosh, I can't imagine, Stuart, uh, how, how they would ever explain that to Jesus. So it's just wickedness. It's evil. It's somebody who's trying to be cool. 
and they're accomplishing just the opposite. So uh, uh, if if I were in a church, Stuart, where the pastor ever disrespected his pulpit using foul language, that would be the absolute end of my time at that church. Now, I would talk to him if he would if he would talk to me, but that would be the absolute end. And if he wouldn't go out and apologize, I just couldn't be uh, a part of that church. Dina says, just three words, tattoos for women, with a question mark. <laughs> tattoos. Dina, I like tattoos. Um, I'm, a, I'm a, a, a chicken when it comes to pain, so I don't have any. But if there was no pain, I'm sure I would have quite a few tattoos. And I don't care whether it's tattoos for men or tattoos for women. It's body art. It's not something that is is um, um, to be confused with with uh, Leviticus, um, where they wrongly use the, the term tattoo. Uh, the, the context there is cutting oneself, bleeding, uh, in in the worship of false idols, false gods. So I I, I have no problem with tattoos for women. Um, I'll give you this caution: um, the more tattoos you have the fewer numbers of people you're going to be able to minister to. That's all. Uh, there are just some people who will not hear from somebody who has tattoos, and especially if there are a lot of them. But but frankly, Dean, I think they are attractive. Uh, I like the art, uh, the skill that goes into them. Uh, certainly I wouldn't wouldn't approve of any tattoos that were vile or wicked or ungodly, but just tattoos. Um, I love the art, so I'm fascinated. I love I love uh, color tattoos especially. And, and uh, Paul and I, when we're with people or we go out and we see people who are tatted up pretty good, um, we make it a point to use their tattoos to try to talk with them about Jesus. So, Dina, if you want to get tattoos, go for it. And if anybody didn't like it, um, then tough. Now, one question. I just thought of this. If you're married, Dina, and your husband asks you not to get tattoos, I would suggest you not get the tattoo. You're one flesh. You're partners. Ask him to pray about it. And then you can come to a resolution. But just generally speaking, tattoos are fine. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. I apologize, my voice is not doing too well, and it's a typical Monday for me after three services yesterday. Uh, Susie says, "How do you get over being disappointed by people, especially church people?" Um, Susie, you know what I think? We got to give people grace. You know, we come to church and we think, we we still think that, that you know, we're, we're in a place where Christians are and Christians shouldn't um, disappoint you. Christians shouldn't do this or Christians shouldn't say that. Uh, the reality, Susie, is that church is a big place where a lot of broken people go. I pray every day, Susie, for the lost, the hurting, the hungry, the broken, the needy, the confused, the fearful, and the angry. Well, that describes the people who show up here on Sunday. And so here's how you get over being disappointed. You have no expectations of them. And you minister to them rather than expect to be ministered to by them. And if somebody behaves in a way that surprises you, uh, talk to them. But but don't be disappointed. I think when we get disappointed so easily with people, uh, I, I think... Our focus is out rather than in. So when somebody disappoints you, just say, you know what? I've disappointed so many people. I'm going to give them grace. I'm going to choose to think the best. Love believes the best. And that's that's what I would do. And to, to have a standard that, that expects more from church people than unchurched people um, makes no sense at all to me. The only difference between people in the church and people out of church is ostensibly the people in church are saved, the people outside the church are not. But flesh is flesh. So, Susie, give them a break. Give them grace. And pray for them. And when you pray for them, God will change your heart for them. But but I think it starts 
foundationally with just not having any expectations of people. Every once in a while, we'll get somebody who comes to our church. We try very hard to get people to take their children to children's ministry. We've got a great children's ministry here. And when I say great, I mean we teach the kids. It's not just fun and games. We teach the kids, and we teach them the Bible verse by verse. Um, and, and, and people will get frustrated. I want my family in church with me. Really? And they will badmouth us or something. Oh, they don't like kids. It's easy to be disappointed in people. Christians ought to be the most compliant people in the world. How difficult is it to come and do what you're asked to do? And then if the church isn't your cup of tea, you don't come back the next time. And it's easy. They get disappointed in us. It's easy, for, especially for our ushers, the people that are on the front lines, to get disappointed in them. But the point is, remember, their guests have no expectations and give everybody the benefit of the doubt. Look in, don't look out. I think, Susie, that will help. Hope that helps you. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. This one is from Booker. He said, why did God choose Jews as his chosen people or even choose any one group of people? Well, Booker, remember, he chose Abraham. Uh, and Abraham, with the covenant of circumcision, Abraham was an idol worshiper. With the covenant of circumcision, he became the first Jew, and all his descendants then were Jews. And God didn't pick them because they were smart. God, God didn't pick them because they were powerful or plentiful. God picked them because, frankly, nobody else would. And it was through the Jews that God would be able to get the most glory. Now, there's other reasons that, that the Jews were chosen. Obviously, God wanted them to represent him in a world filled with darkness. Just like now, he, he wants the church, Christians, to represent him in a very, very dark world. But he chose Jews. Now, I think, Booker, we can get some insight from the New Testament. Paul, in writing to the churches in Corinth, he said, God chose the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. He chose the weak things to shame the strong, the despised things, even the things that are not. And the idea of God will bless them, then everybody else could see, well, then their God can bless me. So that's why God chose Jews. It's why he chose you and me, Booker. Um, that was the people. You know, there's not much value in asking the why questions. The value that we have is just really studying, looking through the questions that um, God wants wants us to ask. Not not the why, but but the who, the the how, the what. As you read your Bible, observe what's going on. So. Um, God chose the Jews, and for the rest of us to deal with it. If it wasn't the Jews, it would have been some other sad group of people. But the reality was everybody in the world was a sad group of people at the time, just like the church. I love when Paul is writing to the churches in Thessalonica when he's listing the sins of the world, the, the people around them. But then he says this to him. He says, and such were some of you. But you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified. And that describes why he chose us. He chose us to give us new life. New life here and a new eternal destination. So, Booker, I hope that makes sense to you. There's no other reason. You know, Jews weren't special, um, and that's why God chose them. Um, they were special because God chose them, and I hope that distinction uh, came out as I intended it to. Madison says, Jesus became a man upon his incarnation. Does he remain a man now, or is he back to his original form? Madison, this is a, an essential of our historic Christ, Christian faith. Jesus is always the God-man. The moment he took on human flesh, he was born traveling through the birth canal of a teenage girl. Um, he was human, and he will remain human for eternity. 
Not only will he remain human, but his scars will remain with him for an ever, ever, an everlasting memorial to to all of us to demonstrate just how much God loves us. You know, so many of us, Madison, we struggle with, how can God love me? He knows all the terrible things I've done. I think when we see him in his glorified, resurrected body, physical body, and we see those scars that will be beautiful and yet at the same time, uh, those scars will be hard to look at in the sense that, that he was beaten so badly. I think at that moment, we're going to see and experience just how much God really loved us. Madison, I wish we could discover that truth while we're here, but a lot of people just can't get over, well, I'm I'm this and I'm that. How could God love me? Um, I don't think we need to ask, how could he love me? I think what we need to do is be grateful that he did and that he proved it. And the fact that Jesus is a man now, human, 100% God, 100% man, the fact that he remains a man demonstrates the depth of his sacrifice. We can't even begin to imagine, Madison, um, what it was like for Jesus to leave the worship of angels, to leave his ministry of holding all things together, and suddenly take on human form. I mean, that would be more staggering than God asking a human to become a cockroach. And you're going to have to be a cockroach forever. Um, We wouldn't do it. Jesus did that, and he did it to an infinitely greater degree. So he does remain a man now. And um, the Son of God is also God the Son, but he is human as well as God. Victor says, Pastor Ron, I've heard you say that as Christians we have no rights, but don't you think that's going overboard? Um, Victor, no, I don't think it's going overboard because that's what the Bible says. Now, I'll be very candid with you. There's a whole bunch of people like you who think it's going overboard. But think about it. We're, We're not our own. We're bought with a price. What does that mean? You know, when you go buy something, uh, at the store. It's yours to do with whatever you want to do with it. Um, and whatever it is you buy, you can buy a hammer and decide you're going to use it for something other than its purpose as a hammer. Don't you think that you'd be surprised if the tool said, I have rights. No, I bought you. I paid for you. Well, God not only created you, but he bought you out of your sin. And so we have no rights. Paul talks about the, the, the potter and the clay. The old, It's a very Old Testament, very Jewish imagery. And you know, the clay doesn't say to the potter, what are you doing with me? I don't like this design. No, the potter has a very specific purpose for that lump of clay. And the reality, Victor, is, and I'm not diminishing our value to God in the least, but the, the, the reality is that we are all just lumps of clay. Do you know that the same elements that make up dirt, the chemical elements that make up dirt, those are the exact same elements that make up our human body? We were made from nothing. We're just dirt. However, having said that, God shapes us and forms us into something so beautiful so magnificent, something that brings him great joy and pride. So here's the thing. We can exercise our rights as humans. We have the free will to make that choice. But when we do that, we're stepping out of the authority that God alone has the right to exercise over us. So we have no rights. I mean, I'm an American citizen, so there are rights that are guaranteed to me by my Constitution as an American citizen. But I am first and foremost, Victor, as are you. We are first and foremost Christians, not Americans. And I realize we're big on rights, but we sacrifice those rights the moment we ask Jesus to be in charge of our life. He gives the orders. It's our responsibility to take those orders, period. And the minute we want to stand up for our rights, we're abdicating our responsibility before God. So, Victor, it's really important you understand that. I don't have a right to be treated well by anybody. 
uh, the only right I have is the right to worship my Creator, who also, as I said to the previous question, purchased me out of my sin. And when I'm truly walking without trying to exercise my rights, that's when I'm really free. And you know, one of the things, Victor, that happens when we, we just surrender to the Lord is we realize that we're really not missing anything at all. In fact, he's made our lives so rich and so full. And what appears to be a sacrifice when we come to faith in the Lord or when we're young or immature Christians turns out not to be a sacrifice at all. I like movies. I really like movies. But I can hardly watch movies anymore. God's asked me not to go to R-rated movies. Again, I'm not a prude. But just in respect of my calling, I don't go to movies where God's name is taken in vain. So pretty much I don't go to movies. You know what? That really wasn't much of a sacrifice at all. It's just easier and richer being with Jesus. Hey, we've got 30 minutes in the program. The phones have been quiet. We'd love your calls. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our program. Sometimes two minutes goes so quickly on that break. Here's a question from Taylor. He or she says, sometimes it seems Paul and Jesus preach completely different Gospels, and he or she wants to know my take. Taylor, that is, um, uh, it's not true. Certainly they don't preach different Gospels. Anybody who thinks that um, really doesn't understand the composition of the Bible, the purpose of the Bible. Um you remember when Jesus was leaving his disciples, he said, I have much more to tell you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will lead you into all truth. And when the Holy Spirit invaded our world in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, um, we began to get that more information. Uh, the Apostle Paul was just one of the authors that God used um, to, to provide that information. But there's nothing different at all. You know, um, um, the Apostle Paul, uh, and, and it's not just Paul, James does it, Jude does it, Luke does it, um, Mark does it. Um, those who wrote the, Peter, wrote the New Testament, um, they, they simply give us a natural outworking, a practical outworking of, of the teaching of Jesus. Um, here's what Jesus said, here's what Jesus means, and here's how we do it. Paul will say, for example, flee from sexual immorality. Uh, don't grumble or complain. Don't let any coarse language come from your mouth. Um, that's the information about how to live. Uh, Paul, in particular, explains um, um, the depth of the gospel, his letter to the church at Rome. Uh, is the most complete treatise of our historic Christian faith that's ever been penned. So, uh, I, I don't know what you would mean when you say Paul and Jesus preach completely different Gospels. It's almost like Jesus, typically, and I'm not accusing you of this, Taylor, but typically when people um, approach me with this, it's like, well, you know, Jesus just wants us to love and Paul is putting all these rules. No, the rules are important. What Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will con- come and convict the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment. The the epistles of Paul go into detail about what it's like to live a life of righteousness. What does it mean to live a life of righteousness, right? Standing with God. So there is nothing different, not in tone, not in intent, um, um, not, not in, in, in the letter of what's written. But not only that, uh, there is no contradiction. Um, 
it's it's all written by the same Holy Spirit. Remember the same Holy Spirit who worked through the Apostle Paul, pushing the pen of the Apostle Paul, is the one who pushed the pen of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So Jesus just had a different ministry. His ministry was to Jews. Paul's ministry was to Gentiles. And obviously that outworking was important. So Taylor, I hope that makes sense. If that doesn't answer your question, please just send it in again uh, because it's an important thing that we need to understand. Tommy's question is next, and he wants to know if mega churches are biblical. Um, Tommy, I'm not a mega church fan. Now, I don't know what the official number is that makes you a mega church, but um, you know the truth is you can't stop people from coming. Um, if, if you've got your Bible's open and God can trust you with His Word, He's going to bring people. And if you have um, thousands and thousands of people that are going to come, you know you can't just shut the door and say we can't we can't fit you. Uh, you you got to accommodate those people. Um, so yeah, mega churches, big churches, large churches are biblical. And I remember on the very first day of the church, three thousand men, not counting wives and children, were saved. A couple of days later, another five thousand men, not counting women and children, were saved. So um, realistically, the very first century church was a mega church, and they didn't even have buildings. They met together wherever they could meet. And in many cases, when people came to faith in Jesus Christ, converting from Judaism, uh, they lost their families. They were completely abandoned by families, so they really needed one another. So I think megachurches are are not a bad idea at all. I'll talk a little bit more about this in a moment practically. Um, But the idea is a big church can do a lot of things, just simply the, the amount of people... Uh, the amount of of manpower, um, the amount of money that they bring in. They can do things that small churches can't do. Now, what they're doing isn't any more important. It doesn't make them any closer to God. But but there's a lot of wonderful things that are done by some of these megachurches. So, yeah, they're biblical. Now, having said that, let me talk about some of the practical problems. Many times, megachurches become large by what the Bible calls tickling our ears, telling people what they want to hear. You know, one of the realities, Tommy, is that it's really easy, and I mean easy, to have a large church. All you got to do is tell people what they want. You know, we live now in a, in a political season uh, I could have a monster church with more money than I, I could possibly spend simply by saying, okay, well, I'm going to be a political church. And I'm going to get on that conservative bandwagon and God, country, and America. Um, um, you know, and, and people would, would, we couldn't build a building big enough for people. That's not the church's function. So a lot of times churches become big because they're giving people what they want to hear, making them comfortable in their sin, and that's certainly not something we ever should have done. I think another disadvantage of megachurches, Tommy, is that it becomes very easy, very easy for people um, to to hide in a megachurch. You can walk in, walk out. You don't really even have to talk to anybody. Um, Just listen to a message and then leave. And you really don't have to get involved. There's really no accountability in a mega church because there's simply too many people to, to lay eyes on. And I think those are really unhealthy things that happen in mega churches. Um, but, but, but none of those things, that's the responsibility of the individual believer. None of those things um, um, make them unbiblical. Um, I mean, we've got to guard our message. I think we've got to be faithful to the mission God has called us. But the reality is God can trust some people with huge groups of people and others uh, he trusts with smaller groups of people. Let me also say this, Tommy. we we got a, a sense, because we're Americans, bigger is better. You know, uh, uh, thousands of people represent success and anointing. Um, that's not true. Um, some of the best Bible teachers I know personally 
are in these small rural areas. And we have, I don't know, 1,200 or so Calvary chapels spread throughout the world. And many of those really gifted Bible teachers, men who love God and who love God's people, um, they're being used by God in some of these rural or smaller churches. So it's not a matter of one guy has a bigger anointing or a greater anointing than somebody else. And I think as Christians, we need to stop equating big with pleasing to God or or having received God's blessing. Um, everybody has their own lane to run in. As long as we're running in our lane, believe me, God is going to be pleased. Let me also add this, Tommy. Got nobody waiting on the phone, I don't think. I don't, so let me add this. Um, Paula used to pray for a church when when we we started with a very small number, and she'd say, "Okay, Lord, when it gets to thirty, I don't want any more than thirty people." And then uh, we had sixty people, and then ninety people. And then as the church began to grow, uh, Paula has tried to make it her mission to know everybody. And the reality is, it's very difficult when you don't really get to know your people. Now I've got a pretty large staff of pastors and their wives. Um, so, so people don't fall through the cracks here. Um, but, but I want to know them, and I want to be able to pray for them. I want to know how to pray for them. And so, for me, um, what I really want to be able to do is 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 minister to them. And I think that's what God's called me to do. We have a lot of people that come to our church, small facilities, so they can't run and hide. But we got a lot of people. And while I love my church, I would not be at all uncomfortable if there were fewer people here, um, just in the sense that uh, I, I would really like to be able to get to know them. I, I get my heart broken when people are going through things and I don't know about it or find out about it until after the fact. And I will chew, and I'm a nice person, but I will chew them out. How could you go through this and not let me know? I could have been praying for you. Um Sometimes the church gets too big for that to happen. Thank you for the question, Tommy. Elijah. Well, I talked about politics a moment ago. Here's a political question. Uh, Elijah says, I think God is leading the Republican landslide in order to get us back to God. What do you think? Elijah, I think you are delusional. Now, I say that with love and respect. But name a single Republican who has ever or who will ever get us to return to God. As far as I know, Elijah, our Bible teaches us that it's the Holy Spirit who leads us to God. Is that incorrect? Our Republican, and I'm a conservative guy, but believe me, our Republican politicians are no more going to spark a revival or, or even, I mean, you can't even get one to say I'm a born-again Christian. Um, very rarely will somebody do that. And then even those that do very rarely ever govern as consistently Christians because they're going to get hammered in the media. And likely they wouldn't get reelected. So um, God's not leading a Republican landslide. In fact, we don't know for sure if there's going to be one. It appears that there's going to be a significant change in the government structure uh, in in our legislative branches. Um, but but no Republican has ever gotten us back to God. Now let me tell you why I think a conservative change in government would be better. Because at the very least, we'll put the brakes on this full free fall, this descent into sin. But no, Republicans aren't going to lead us back to God. We need to understand our kingdom is not of this world. God's not dealing with nations anymore. He's dealing with individuals. And if you think your candidates being elected is going to change things, then I think you really need to open your Bible. Elijah, let me say one other thing to you and to to, to so many others who take the position that you take, we need to remember that the people that vote differently than you do, God is crazy in love with them. 
And they need to be the object of your ministry. You should be praying for our president, for our vice president, for our senators, for our congressmen, our Supreme Court justices, our governors, our local leaders. You should be praying for them all, praying Christ for them. And you know what's really scary about this whole idea, Elijah? You look at the condition our country's in, and you see the leaders of our country, people that can't get out of their own way. They can't construct coherent sentences. And then you look at the Old Testament principle that God gives us the leadership, the government we deserve. That's terrifying. We have so abused God. We have so put him out of our day-to-day lives. The leaders who are going to stand before God trembling in fear trembling in fear during the Great Tribulation when hailstones are being poured down from heaven as a judgment. The small and the great alike, the, the, the housewife, the janitor, the cop, and the president, the governor, they're going to be in the caves alike shaking their fists at God. If we get the government we deserve, then we're really, really in trouble, Elijah. We are really, really in trouble. Let's go to Lucy from Universal City on line one. Lucy, thank you for calling. I'm tired of talking. Hi, Pastor Ron. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you. Good, good. Okay, my question has to do with the last Calvary Crafters meeting that we had a couple of weeks ago. We have been studying 1 Timothy, and it happened to be chapter 4 when this came up. Now, uh, we have a, a few ladies that are really Bible scholars, and I'm really so, so happy to be part of a group that really digs in. So we tried to answer this question, and I want to bounce it off of you just to make sure we said the right thing and did the right thing, because we're meeting tomorrow, and I don't want to uh, have said anything against this um, this situation without clearing it with you first. Okay, here's the question. When Timothy, uh, when Paul tells Timothy all about the uh, requirements of being a pastor and and that uh, a deacon also um, should be a good example in his home and and in control of his children and etc you know the whole family working together towards uh, the common goal of serving the Lord what happens when the kids rebel? And as they grow and go into the teenage years, maybe, and they're they're looking at other things besides what mom and dad have told them about Jesus and who they are and and who Jesus is and all that. How how should that type of pastor be dealt with? Is there anything in the scriptures that says? that the pastor should step down if his kids are in rebellion. And, uh, of course, I, I'm tempted to say what I and others had made the comment of, uh, unless you, you want me to, um, just to clarify if we said the right thing or not. Yeah, Lucy, I'll just tell you what, 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 what the, our responsibility is, and then, then you guys can discuss it among yourselves. Uh, very simply, uh, n- no person can be held accountable for the choices that their grown children make. And when I say grown, uh, when they're old enough to make their own decisions, we can't make anybody be a Christian. What we're responsible to do is to raise them or to train them up in the fear of the Lord, in, in the nurture and admonition of God. So here's what a pastor is responsible to do. And there are lots of pastors. In fact, PKs, uh, pastors' kids, are famous for their rebellion. Uh, I know a bunch of pastors now who are those rebellious PKs uh, many, many years ago. 
but here's here's what the, the the pastor father is responsible to God to do, and that is to to um, supervise to discipline that child um, in a way that's consistent with the Word of God. Um, for example, and I'll just this is an easy one, but but uh, when you've got a teenage kid uh, who is rebelling, he's living under your roof. And uh, he doesn't want to go to church, or she doesn't want to go to church. Um, the, the pastor's responsibility is to say, uh, not only are you going to go to church, but you're going to go to church, and you're going to be polite, and you're not going to embarrass me, and you're certainly not going to embarrass your family. Um, but, but in other words, that we're to discipline them consistently. Uh, again, we can't be responsible for the choices they make, but we can make them accountable for their choices and the consequences of those choices. So it's just real simple. If, if uh, a pastor's son or daughter is uh, rebelling against God, um, then um, he's going to be responsible to make sure that they are disciplined in a manner that's consistent with the Word of God. Uh, I know uh, pastors, and, and, and some of these men are my friends, who won't discipline even their Christian children and and those are people that cannot manage their own household. Therefore, they certainly shouldn't be in a position of managing the household of God. Does that help at all, Lucy? Yes, thank you so much. I'll, okay. I'll refer back to this program and so that they can hear it for themselves. Okay, thank you. And again, remember, everybody, nobody's responsible for the sinful choices that their children make. What we're responsible to do is say, this is my house. I'm under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, so in my house, this is the way you're going to behave. And they're responsible for that behavior. And if they don't manage them to to, to behave appropriately, then, in my view, they would be disqualified from being a pastor in a church. Thank you, Lucy, for that. Let's go to Cindy on line two. Cindy, thank you for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. Hi, Cindy. You know, I was thinking about the rapture, and then I was thinking about when Jesus finally returns after Armageddon and, you know, everything happens, and then Jesus comes back. Now, the rapture, we're going to be caught up in the sky. We'll be looking up, and we'll just be caught up. But the thing that's really got me amazed is that when Jesus finally comes back with his army and everything, that if we're if somebody's standing in Texas looking up, they're going to see him. But then on if you drill a hole all the way through the earth to the other side of the earth, that person standing there is going to see him. So no matter where you're standing, you will see Jesus coming to you. And it's like if it's like he'll be coming from all directions, mm-hmm. you know, encircling the earth. And I just have that. I'm absolutely fascinated by that. So I didn't just have a question. It's just something I was thinking about today. So mm. anyways, um, thank, I'm going to get you, off Cindy. the radio and, and listen to you. Bye. Thank you. Uh, I'm fascinated by that as well. I think one of the things we forget, and I've had people say, oh, come on, you, you can't see. Uh, every eye will see um, uh, when he returns. That can't possibly be true. This is a supernatural event. A supernatural event. Now remember, Jesus coming to Jerusalem, he's going to put his feet on the Mount of Olives. When he comes back in Revelation chapter 19, he's going to set his feet on the Mount of Olives. Um, if somebody in Texas who can't see the Mount of Olives, you can say, well, how's that going to be? Remember, he's omnipresent. He's everywhere. And then we've got to factor in the supernatural event. Do you remember when Jesus uh, was taken uh, into the wilderness, um, tempted in the wilderness by by the devil? And the, the devil took him up to a high wall and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. How could that be? Well, it's a supernatural event. I think we look at these things, and I think people trying to poke holes in it, Cindy, they're, they're thinking, well, that's impossible, so that can't be true. But, but remember, this is God who can do all things. And I promise you that when Jesus returns, everybody will see it. I've got some friends, pastor friends, who say, well, well, you know, before that would have been impossible, but now we've got satellite technology, and we can see these things on the news that are going to be happening. That's not the way Jesus is coming back. It's not going to be that we're going to be able to turn into, C- in, into CNN um, and, and, and watch it that way. Every eye will see when Jesus returns. Just like he could turn the whole earth dark, 
during the Great Tribulation, uh, in the Exodus plague, uh, he can turn on the lights for the whole world as well. So just think of it from that perspective, Cindy, and it will be an amazing thing. The other night when we were going home, and I'm, I think it was Friday night after church, uh, but there was a, a lightning display in the sky that was just brilliant. Uh, and, and the lightning was far away. There was no thunder, so it, it wasn't close lightning. And and it was actually behind the clouds that were in the area. And so the lightning was lighting up the clouds. And everybody was amazed. Look at that. It's beautiful. I know some people said, said Pastor Ron, we just pulled over and watched it. Um, if Jesus can light up the sky with lightning, imagine what he'll do with the one who said, let there be light, and there was, when he comes back. So nobody's going to miss it. Nobody is going to miss it at all. Um, final comment on this, Cindy. Um, you know, uh, in, in the Great Tribulation, at the three and a half year period of the Great Tribulation, um, Moses and Elijah are going to be killed. Their bodies are going to be desecrated, dragged through the streets, uh, a big party for three days, and then they're going to come to life, and every everybody will see that as well. Well, that's going to be something that more likely will be seen via satellite all over the world, uh, because the whole world, I promise you, is going to be tuned in at that. But when Jesus comes back, it's not going to be that at all. It's going to be Jesus. We're really going to see Jesus. Hey, thank you for tuning in, and thank you so much for putting up with my voice today. I love being here with you. My name is Ron Arbaugh. I have the privilege of being the pastor at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, Texas. We have our men's, women's, and youth Bible studies tonight at 7. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4 and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. AM 630, The Word. We hope you've enjoyed The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron. You can find out more about Pastor Ron and all of the folks over at Calvary Chapel by logging on to calvarysa.com. Once again, calvarysa.com. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.